0: to the strange group podcast my name's Jason Barnard that was the Human League and the sound of the crowd got the huge pleasure to welcome Ian Burden today formerly keyboards as well as bass with the Human League in what for many people is their definitive period and Ian wrote and co-wrote many of the tracks at the time and uh, the sound of the crowd being pivotal track in the story of the human League and defined the next chapter in the group well first of all welcome Ian. No, my pleasure, Jason. Hope you're well. I am good, yeah. I guess extra resonance in these uh, weird times. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, the sound, as, as I was mentioning, The Sound of the Crown, you were pivotal in, in defining the sound of that track, I guess, which then marked the new chapter in the Human League.
1: Yeah, it was the very first thing I did in terms of writing and recording, with the league i'd done a, a european tour with them because the, mm. the previous lineup had, had split up and um i went to be the keyboard player on that tour and during that tour I was talking with philip philip Oke, and he was saying that they had a, a contractual commitment to deliver another album to virgin so i said well if you want I'll, I'll drop by the studio if you need a hand with anything and that's the very first thing that happened i, I walked into the this little, really grotty little studio in Sheffield. I mean, it really was damp and smelly and awful. And Philip had this really strange rhythm he'd sequenced, old analogue sequencing system, step sequencing we used to call it. And it was this bump, 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 bump. And I had no idea what to do with that, but I started playing and programming some sounds. I was was aware of, of the, and, and liked the earlier Human League stuff. So I, I assumed that the brief was to do monophonic synthesizer lines, you know, just, just single notes at a time. So that's why it's all uh, just riffs and bass parts. And yeah, so keeping it quite simple. I thought it was just a very weird, strange piece of music, I wrote some stream of consciousness lyrics for it, which I was surprised that Philip kept. I assumed he'd go away and write some some fresh lyrics for it, something that made sense, but he didn't. And then the next thing I knew was that the record label and the band's management had decided that it should be released as a single. So, and there you go. I think it was the first, yes, I'm sure it was the first significant single for the league in terms of in terms of chart positions i think it was the f- i think it was the first top 20 in the uk yeah
0: was that the first with uh, susan and Joanne on on backing vocals then it was yes yes
1: we actually recorded them in sheffield because they were still at school so we we recorded them on to, you know in those days it was magnetic tape so we got them to sing along and have just their voices on tape. And then we took that tape down and we, and we flew it in, as it were. You know, you, you'd replay that bit of tape and layer it down onto the, the finished
0: recording. Was it clear that you'd joined the band when, when you were making that track or were you just helping out? I called along to the studio and there was a, a
1: journalist there, I think someone from, from Melody Maker. Um, I can't remember. And there was a photographer, but they weren't there together. The journalist was doing an interview and the photographer was taking photos for, no, the, actually the photographer was Adrian. He was taking photographs.
0: Right.
1: And he wanted to take my photo and he said this was for the artwork. And I said, well, what's that got to do with me? And Philip said, well, because you're in the band, I said, oh, I didn't know that. And this journalist was saying, what, well, you didn't know that? And I said, well, no one asked me to join. So this journalist said to Philip, do you want Ian to join the band? <laughs> and Philip said, yeah, I would. So the journalist said to me, do you want to join the band, Ian? So I said, yeah, OK. <laughs> that's, that's typical of how things were with the human League. It
0: was all, you know, there was it was not, um, it was all very amateurish. It really was, you know. Obviously, the, the album that became was was Dare, which is just one of the great albums. That pop sound was defined by tracks like Love Action that, that you um, co-wrote with Philip. Was it a very much a conscious decision to have a bit more of that sort of catchy yes, yeah. element to it? Because yeah. there is that sort of bit of a, a riff in love, love Action that's got um poppy edge. I think Joe Callis, you know, who was with The resilience yeah. and myself,
1: We'd been composing music. Uh, I mean, Joe was obviously the principal songwriter in the Rosillos. And we came along, we had structures. You know, we looked at things as like verses and choruses and bridge sections and middle eights. Mm. And we brought that sort of structuring to it. And, of course, that's really what led to it, that more pop music um, sensibility. Came in because of that, largely. So, yeah. I th- before that, on, on the, the first two Human League albums, you know, when I listen to those, I can I can see that 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 Martin and Ian had basically written instrumentals, and then Philip had to. F- think of something to sing over the top whereas we were me and Joe were quite well defined you know we said this is this is a verse bit and this is the chorus bit where you kind of repeat things and you got the message pretty quickly yeah
0: Forty years since since Dare, since it's been released, and I know. Mm. current lineup. I think announcing 40th anniversary tour of Dare, so I think they'll be playing the album as a whole towards the end of next year. Okay, uh, so was the obvious question: Did you realise how good it was? No, we, we well, we liked it. Of course, we
1: didn't know that we were making something that was going to be so commercially successful as that. Well, I don't think we even thought that it was, would necessarily be influential. We were just making the next Human League album. Of course, it was a different set of personnel with Joe Callis and myself, and with the girls, of course. And we were experimenting. I mean that was my background in music was very much to do with experimental stuff you know I liked certain elements of prog rock and things like Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk you know mm-hmm. essentially we were using 1970s technology but doing new things with it um yeah but we it was an experiment and uh, yeah we didn't know that it was it was going to be commercially successful
0: and do you think it um the Sheffield music scene at the time was an influence? Because you talk about that experimentation and it was so so much going on at the time with different bands and different sounds in the 70s and into the 80s. Sheffield was such a a great place for music and arts. Yeah, well, I I went to Sheffield um, as a student. As a
1: teenager, I was living in... Well, I was at a boarding school in Cambridgeshire and me and a couple of other kids there were really into the German... Bands, Noy, Faust, Cannes, there was like two or three of us and we felt like a real minority in Cambridgeshire. Um, So when I went to Sheffield, I was amazed to discover these people like Cabaret Voltaire, obviously, you know. I thought, oh, these are my people. Yeah, and um, yeah, that was a real feature of, of the music scene in Sheffield. When I first went there, Cabaret Voltaire were the only people doing that, you know, and, and it picked up. Then you, know, you then got Vice Versa, who became ABC and and
0: various others. Obviously, um, Dare was propelled by Don't You Want Me, which was obviously probably the biggest single of the human league. Yeah. There was kind of conflict or differing views on whether that track should have been released? I don't think anyone in
1: the band wanted it to be released. We, um, It's essentially a piece written by by Joe Callis, with Philip adding lyrics to it. I played played a few little bits on it and helped out with it with some of the programming, and I thought, yeah, you know, it's a it's a fascinating and fairly complicated piece of music, and I thought it was really good until Philip wrote the lyrics for it, and then I thought that's really cheesy that is you know that is like and then i i didn't from then on i didn't like it philip didn't like it because he thought it as a piece of music it was too complicated to be a, a hit single but uh, simon draper who was the the head of virgin records um just took command he decided he didn't care what we thought about it he was going to put it out there was also we kind of felt, felt that we'd already had three hit singles from that album, and the album itself had just been released. We didn't. We thought if we put out
0: another single, it will damage
1: the album sales. But uh,
0: clearly, it didn't. I, I think you, when you were talking about the, uh, it could be seen as cheesy. I guess the vocals, especially the girls' vocals, weren't. Times they weren't perfectly in tune, but then that brought some humanity to the the track and kind of gave it that bit of edge. It's difficult to
1: me to for me to look at it from an outside perspective you know it, uh, I can't be objective about it but I, I, I imagine there are a lot of people would hear that and think and, and, and actually enjoy the fact that it it had that kind of little bit of amateurishness about it you know I think that's the whole thing about the girls it was they were just a couple of girls it could have been any two girls you know I mean they really could and they would they, I think they would be the first to admit that as well you know they weren't singers and they weren't dancers but there they were in a group. And, but, but that also fitted in very well with a kind of, I don't like the word punk, but everyone knows what we mean. We say that, that thing of just get some cheap guitar, don't have any great talent, it doesn't matter, just get up and do it. And we, we really did believe in that kind of ethos.
0: And at the time, synthesizers and that type of music was a a lot more difficult to do today than when you just can can get a laptop or a cheap keyboard, etc. Was it a time-consuming process to to build up a track?
1: Yes, well, it was. I mean, talking to musicians who... I mean, younger musicians who are working with synthesizers, they're kind of often quite surprised when I tell them that pretty much everything was played by hand. You know, we had computerized drums Mm. which locked everything down but Joe Callis and myself on death I would say eight out of every ten keyboard part on there we played manually but we really had to up our game in terms of timing because the computerized drums revealed true timing to us you know Mm. before then a band was as good as the drummer you know and everything shifted around on that but the computerised drums really did reveal anything that was slightly out of time. You know, it would really stand out. So Jo and myself really got much more disciplined in our timing. There were a few bits on the Dare album which were sequenced, but again, it was step-time sequencing. I mean, these days you could just play it in, you know, to the piece of software and then correct it on your computer screen. Uh, but we had to enter everything numerically. So every note has got at least three values. It's a numerical value for the pitch of the note, a numerical value for when the note begins, and a third numerical value for the duration of the note. So you think every note had to have three numerical entries. And so sometimes writing up one part could take two, maybe even three days. Yeah, it was a hell of a process,
0: yeah. Post-Dare, you've got the the task of sort of following up and and, and continuing it. You were responsible for co-writing Mirror Man, and that's got a bit more of a sort of Motown solely edge to it? Yes, that came came out of when we were
1: touring off the back of Dare, and we would you know, before every show, you're doing your sound check, and Joe Callis, he kept playing this keyboard thing over and I kept joining in with it. And so we it was a jam during sound checks. And for some reason, we kept coming back to it. And then eventually, Joe and myself worked it up into as a song. And again, Philip wrote
0: the words for it. And that's got a bit more of a, a band feel. And I guess, was that the yeah. direction of the group?
1: Yeah, well, we started re- recording, sampling our own drums was one thing and our own cymbals so that bring brought a lot more ambience to that side of it joe had been struggling to get a, a set a bass sound on the synths so we decided that i would put put it down using a bass guitar just to keep us going just to have something there and it ended up staying so it was supposed to be and that's it was actually recorded in one take martin russian pressed record i played The bass guitar from beginning to end and then he said let's listen back to that which we did and he listened to it with the bass and just the drums together and he said well there's nothing wrong with that and he said so we didn't do any retakes on it and that's what ended up staying on it so quite gratifying in a way
2: yeah
0: So, in terms of constructing a track, when when did the lyric come in? Was it very much part way through as the track was being built up, or was it very much a last minute thing? Very much towards the end. There
1: are occasionally songs where I think there might be a title that triggered things off. So, I think it was, it was there were either no lyrics at all, or there was perhaps a little idea like a title. There was, there was a song with, uh, I think it was a B-side called "The World Tonight," and that was just there was a radio, a Radio Four program called that, and we always just liked that as a as a song title, and it was it was lying around for years before you know one of us wrote a piece of music and thought, ah, that's the world tonight. So, but by and large, yeah, the the, the words were the last bit of the composition.
0: It took um, a while for the, the, the formal follow-up of DARE to come out, but um, there was a, an, an EP that was released between DARE and, and Hysteria, and one of those tracks that, that spanned uh, the Fascination EP and, and uh, Hysteria was I Love You Too Much, which was, I think, again, another one of your co-writes. Yeah. What was the reason for the what could be seen as a, a, a stopgap EP that really could you could have just added a few more tracks on and it had been a fine follow-up to DARE?
1: I had this conversation recently with Joe Callis. He said that's what we should have done. He he actually would extended that EP another another four songs, as you as you say, you know, and uh, that that would have been the next album. But um, there was a tension between, particularly between Philip Oakey and Martin Rushant, which to this day I don't understand. And it is a very very long time ago, so I can't Mm. remember all the details. But there was a general ennui that came in because we suddenly realized that the way that we'd made dare was a mythology that a lot of other people were doing so it was no longer our thing and of course then you've also got pressure commercial pressure to do more of what you did before and given that dare was an experiment for, I mean for people like me it's like well we did that experiment it, that's done I mean we want to do something else now and there were moves that way with fascination we did move into this these this newer area of digital technology that was coming in so a lot of fascination is done by actually sampling real instruments and then sequencing them there's a very early days of that but then you had people coming along very soon after that and doing that all combining everything digital synthesizers analog synthesizers real instruments and you know Trevor Horn and Frankie Goes to Hollywood they just they just went for that and they became the next thing you know in well amongst others of that um yeah it it was it was it was difficult to know where to go and I, I think that there was a lucky accident nobody quite knew what they were doing and it was a fairly fairly eclectic bunch of people involved in it who'd never worked with each other before and dare came out of that but then we all kind of knew each other and we all probably had our own different ideas about the direction it should go in so there was no general consensus about where to go and there was no chance of another happy accident (laughs)
0: Hysteria itself, got quite a few of your tracks that are on that, including uh, Saw so Hurt, another co-write with Philip. There's quite a lot of producers listed for that album. Um, Chris Thomas was involved at one point, as well as by the end, was it Hugh yeah,
1: Padgham? Hugh Padgham, yeah. Well, Hugh, pa- Hugh Padgham was the one, the guy who ended up doing the last bits of recording, and he mixed it. Yeah, no, it... It's difficult for me to I can talk easily about Dare because that all happened in one room, you know, with with a very set little group of boys, basically, Joe Callis, myself, Philip, Martin Russian, and Adrian, and an engineer called David Allen. And that was the setup. It's all confined to that one room. And I can picture it all still in my head. I can even picture the half a dozen synthesizers that we used. Whereas when it comes to Hysteria, we seem to move from different studios, working with different engineers, different producers. Some songs have been, you know, we'd start recording in one studio and another one would start in a different studio. And it's all just like, um, I can't put that together. That's just a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces don't even fit together for me.
0: With Hysteria bigger budget, various people that you can bring on board and, and chop and change, whereas I guess with DARE, low budget, limited pool of people, you're all in it together, you're just getting going, you've got limitations, but I guess that's, that can spur you on in a way. Uh, but also not having anything to lose. Yeah.
1: It didn't, well, if DARE was a failure, it really didn't matter, whereas making a follow-up to that did matter. You know, there's an expectation there, which we didn't have with Dare. So, you know, and also I think it's difficult with pop music. I mean, my favourite thing of all time is an experimental band called Pink Floyd. You yeah, know, huge, yeah, yeah. Commercial, commercially successful. They're an example of a, a band that has longevity. And there are other bands like U2 and even, even bands like the Rolling Stones ultimately are cult bands. Now, the cult following may amount to millions, but they're not dependent upon having hit singles, you know. And I thought that that's where I would personally have preferred to be, you know, and that sort of thing. I did have conversations with Philip about this and said, can't we just get away from pop music? Let's think about the songs on Dare that were not pop songs, and let's just work it that way. But obviously, uh, I couldn't um, develop a consensus within the band for that attitude. I think certain members of the band quite enjoyed being on top of the pops, you know, and being in the tabloids.
0: track is Love on the Run, certainly describes an early version of that track that's on the Anthology, a very British synthesiser group. And that early version of Love on the Run has got a bit more of that dare feel as opposed to the uh, Jam and Lewis 80s thing, or the early version, is far superior than the finished product, which was more polished.
1: Yeah, it's a long time since I heard the earlier version of that. But I had very high hopes for that song, not least because I was a principal writer on the, on the music on it. And I always thought it was just a really good song, and I thought it had yeah. I thought it would stand well as a, as a pop single. I was very disappointed when it came to release a single, and that wasn't put out. Um, they released a song called "I Need Your Loving," which is a jam and Lewis song. And I thought, no, Love on the Run is much better, much better piece of music than that. With I Need Your Loving, I can remember being in the studio in Minneapolis with the headphones on, standing in front of the microphone, doing my vocal bits and thinking, you know, what what I'm hearing down the headphones, I really don't like it. I'm not talking about my singing. I'm actually talking about the track. You know, I just thought, you know, I don't, re- I don't really like this. I don't understand why I'm singing on this. You know, and when, when, they, when that was released as a single, and uh, not Love on the Run, yeah, that was a, that
0: was a disappointment for me personally. In essence, that album crashed was basically a Jam and Lewis album. Do you think it was a, a bit of the the soul of the band was kind of going as it was just kind of. Phil O'Kee fronted Jam and Lewis record. That's exactly that's exactly what I think it was.
1: The Human League songs on there. I think that Jam and Lewis just regarded those as fillers. I mean, it's a very different thing in attitude in the USA to in the UK. You know, if you if you like me and you you got something like A Lad Insane by David Bowie, mm. it's an album. Every song is important to it. In America. The album is just the follow-on to the hit singles. You write two, maybe three hit singles, and everything else is just something to slap on there willy-nilly just to make an album out of it.
0: You talked about the fact that your vision of the band, you had sort of a slightly different vision of the band, became kind of a bit of a treadmill and, and the sort of artistic element had, had gone a bit. Were you just kind of a bit disillusioned with it all? After Crash,
1: I enjoyed the touring because it was a chance to play. Working with Jam and Lewis, I got to do very little. You know, somebody else playing my keyboard parts, you know, I always, all I was required to do was a few little bits of singing here and there the rest of the time sitting around doing nothing. So when it came to going out on tour, it's the first time in my life I actually enjoyed getting on stage and playing because I hadn't been playing for such a long time. That aspect of it was good. After that, getting back to the business of, okay, it's time to start doing... Another album and, and every time I talked to Philip about it, he always had some excuse for not getting to getting together, you know, so let's go down the snooker hall and play a few frames, you know, or or let's go out on the motorbike or something. And it just I thought we were back into this same thing of you know, absolute lack of uh momentum you know and I thought we, we're gonna we're gonna regress back into another period of inertia and I really am not up for that at all you know it's time time to pack it in it's kind of like going playing a game of Monopoly board where the the only thing you do is go round and pick up 200 pounds every time you pass go and you don't do anything else so yes a treadmill yeah did you quit the ind- music
0: after the human league then yeah yeah yeah,
1: yeah, pretty much. You know, I'm always well. If somebody asks me to do something, I'm always, you know, if if I think it's interesting, I will I will do it. But um, no, uh, the, the Human League. I was only involved with it for seven years. You know, I've spent fifty five years of my life doing other things. But that's the only bit that anyone's really interested in. So, but in a way, that's quite pleasant. You know, to know that you've you've got that little bit of history yeah it 's quite a pleasant feeling but um, no it, it's, it, that was time to the music I never got into music with the idea of it being a career anyway. I just stumbled into it by accident and by the time I was not enjoying it, losing interest in, losing interest, then yeah it was not difficult to pack in and leave
0: you mentioned that if if someone asked you to potentially participate on something that, that potentially be of interest and We have a track here from about three or four years ago, Paralox, which I think you you played bass on, and that's Overdrive. Oh yeah. So was that an Australian band?
1: Yeah, Paralox. Yeah, Melbourne based. Uh, It's a guy called John von Arlen, who's he's a very good producer and he does quite a few things. But Paralox is his baby. Yeah, and uh, yeah, every now and then he sends me a song and asks for, for me to add some bits usually he wants me to play bass guitar on it there's been a couple where i've added some keyboard parts but um you know with the you know we're now into an era where i don't have to get on a plane and fly all the way to melbourne and so he just sends me a song with no bass on it says, "Do you want to stick something on here so you know it's not any big deal and and if i like the song i'll do it yes
0: the influence of, of the Human League sound on, on him.
1: Yeah, he, he's he's a big Human League fan, yeah. There's quite a lot of bands around now who, you I suppose you would describe them as synth pop. I did a remix recently for a Danish duo called Softwave. They sent me a song and said, you know, would, would I do a remix of it? And so I thought, yes, I like the song. Um, so that was interesting because I actually took, I removed everything apart from the lead vocal. And then I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go synth pop. They'll probably hate this. And I just did a piano and string arrangement, but left the voice exactly as it was, took everything else off. And they absolutely loved it. And it got a lot of radio airplay. So again, gratifying so anything can happen. Just another another remix recently for Nature of Wires, as another electronic type of band. Mm. I like to sort of mess with things properly. I don't like to just do a remix. It just it's like no, I'm going to make it into something completely different. You know,
0: would be remiss not not to talk about your most recent solo album, Hey Hey Ho Hum. First track that we're playing today is Let the Devil Drown, mm. and I've read that. Um, the reason that you started producing your sort of first solo material was actually getting some of the original Sims back and, and that leading from there?
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. They were all sort of in storage, and I thought i better... It seemed such a waste. I thought, you know, maybe somebody else could use these. You know, they might want them and in fact i'm pretty sure they will but the first thing to do was to check out whether or not they worked and whether or not whether or not i needed to get any get my engineer onto them to fix them and stuff and they're mostly modular synths so obviously the first thing you've got to do is connect them up to a keyboard which led to connecting them up to some software and then for ease of operation i started writing up little riffs and chord sequences so i could have those looping around to test out the synthesizers. And I realised, yes, I'm I'm writing, so I'll push on with it. I was very impressed as a, as a teenager when I discovered that uh, Mike Oldfield had recorded an album where he did absolutely everything, mm. you know, it's a true solo album. And I, I thought, no, I'm going to do this because very often an album is called a solo album because it's by an artist who is more usually associated with a band, I had I bought a solo album by David Gilmour of Pink Floyd. And when I looked at the list of credits of other musicians, there was about tw- at least 20 other musicians on there. So I thought, well, is this really a solo album? Mm. So I thought, no, I'm going to do absolutely everything. Absolutely. And I don't want any interference from everyone. I'm going to be totally selfish about this. Yeah.
0: Obviously, you, you, you wrote lyrics for that, mm. that album. Was that yeah. how, was that challenging or did it just come naturally? Um, I, d- I don't remember it being a challenge. No, there's
1: plenty of ideas. Um, I th- a lot of songwriters will say this. It kind of all falls into place and then you spend ages and ages finding that last line. That you need you know you need say 30 lines of vocal and you've got 29 and it's the last one that is always the most difficult <laughs>
0: here in terms of our final track which is again from uh, your most recent solo album uh, the track being hanging around Uh, do you remember writing that particular track and and the kind of the the reason that you know the spark of creativity that that formed that song it started
1: with a a chord idea I had which is a, a minor seventh chord that I really liked and I started building something around that and then it built actually around the lyrics because it's very much a song about me, my life, which is fairly laid back. I don't have to go out and work. You know, I'm very lucky and I can be very indolent. And, you know, I thought this I'm so lucky. There's very little in my life that induces any panic or need to go rushing around. And I thought, you
0: know, I might as well say that. I mean, that's the point of a solo album is it's to express whatever you want to express or express a bit of you. Absolutely. So we're now in this strange thing with
1: COVID-19, of this lockdown, which I'm so lucky. I really am. Because it makes little difference to me. And I'm feeling really, really, I mean, heartfelt grief for people stuck in tower blocks you know in cities and i mean i have a lovely big garden and i don't need to go out to to an office you know i just whatever work i do i can do from home it's made so little difference to me but that song hanging around that's my lifestyle um yeah so it's it, that's it put down in a
0: few words against some music Will you be producing any other solo material once now given the success of your last album? Yep.
1: Um, yes, I've, I've got quite a few songs I've been working away. My way of working is very different from the Human League, which was that you start with some rhythms and synth sounds and build it up, and the words are the last thing to do. I, I tend to sit, sit at the piano or with an acoustic guitar and map out... A song, so it's a song you could go into it and play it in a pub, you know, in front of your friends with an acoustic guitar. I've got it, it, has to work for me at that level, and then I'll go and record it.
0: Thanks so much for your time, Ian. It's such a pleasure to uh, talk to you today and okay, okay, okay. You hear about your full journey obviously, the, the Human League, but also your, some of the collaborations that you've done and, and your solo material. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure too, Jason. Thank you very much.